0: Good morning and welcome to the December 11th, 2023 edition of Mountain Money. I'm your host, Roger Goldman. I'm here with my co-host, Doug Wells. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Another beautiful day here in Park City. Another beautiful day and a pretty interesting show we've got. This morning on Mountain Money, we're going to start by talking to author author Max Marshall. He traced a murder and multi-million dollar drug ring in his new book, Among the Bros, a fraternity crime story. And we're going to speak with Mike Christensen, the executive
1: director of the Utah Rail Passenger Association and Mike's going to discuss why the Boise Salt Lake City Las Vegas passenger rail did not make the cut in the Federal Railroad Administration. And then we're going to end Mound Money and talk with Steven from uh, Pret Helmets based here in Park City. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, Stay tuned and we'll be back in a
0: moment. For many of us, the image of college Greek life is frozen in the sepia tones of the relatively innocent hijinks captured in the classic film Animal House. But the dark side of fraternity life in the 21st century is far more concerning. Notwithstanding the fact that virtually all national Greek organizations have banned hazings, there are repeated stories of injury or death on college campuses associated with Greek life. And then there is the even darker story of a massive drug ring centered on Greek life at the College of Charleston and other southern universities. That story is told by author Max Marshall in his new book, Among the Bros. We're lucky to have Mr. Marshall with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money.
2: Good morning, it's great to be here.
0: (laughs) Max, tell us a little bit about what caused you to write the book and to what extent was the decision sort of colored or influenced by your own fraternity experience?
2: Sure. So I was in Greek life at the same time as most of the guys in this book from 2012 to 2016. And when I was in a fraternity, I just saw, I was really shocked by the amount of Xanax I saw flying around. I knew guys who were dealing it. I knew guys who were using a lot of it. I even knew some guys who made their own Xanax. They had their own pill presses. And... This book is about the biggest college fraternity Xanax ring ever discovered in America. It was these guys in Charleston, South Carolina that were shipping millions of Xanax pills around the US um, using fraternity pledges, using the dark web. And this ring basically grew and grew. They made more money, they made more pills, more fraternity sort of were using their product. And then eventually it unraveled because a student was murdered um, on the first Friday of spring break 2016 and the police found his body surrounded by all these ca- counterfeit Xanax pills. And that's really where the book takes off.
1: So for the more genteel in our audience, uh, Xanax, uh, what's, what's the street name? What is, what is it?
2: <laughs> sure. So, yeah, I mean, people will call them, you know, some people call them bars because the pill is shaped in a rectangle. Um, some people call them Xanny's, uh, QB is a quarter bar. There's all sorts of street names, but it is you know, the same drug that people take for anxiety. You know, I think a lot of people show up to college thinking of Xanax as something their parents take for, for international flights, um, but it actually really is this kind of it party drug for guys my age. And um, for instance, in the same last 20 years, the opiate overdoses have gone up about eightfold Xanax overdoses have gone up tenfold. So we are really in the midst of a Xanax epidemic that, that's not as talked about.
0: And early in the book, you sort of describe the, the, one of the common uses of Xanax is for, for Sunday mornings after a hard week of partying. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how that would work.
2: Sure, so yeah, there's the phrase people use is the Sunday scaries. So, you know, uh, especially in these sort of quote-unquote best fraternities where you might be going out four or five nights a week, even six or seven, by the time Sunday comes along, you have this sort of cumulative hangover that basically functionally is like a panic attack. And so uh, a lot of guys to sort of take the edge off would you know, turn on NFL Sunday and, and take some Xanax. And that's often how it started, but much more common sort of as things ramp up is using it to mix with, you know, if you mix Xanax four or five Keystone lights, it's like you've had 15 or 16 beers. And that's really the most common combination I saw.
1: okay, and let's let's change the tack now. I don't want uh, parents calling up and saying we shouldn't be chatting about about that. but um, well, I guess I'm not changing the tack too much, but <laughs> there was there was an event called uh, Mountain Weekend uh, that you talk about early in your book. Can you share with our audience what that is? and what does that tell you about the values and behaviors of the bros? at uh, the College of Charleston.
2: Sure, so yeah, when I showed up to um, the College of Charleston to start reporting, you know, there are two fraternities that were very involved in this drug ring, KA and SAE, and everyone told me, like, you know, before you report, you should look into KA Mountain Weekend um, and SAE Mountain Weekends. They both had these kind of crazy, like, uh, weekend parties where they go into the mountains. An SAE Mountain Weekend basically seemed like it was a pretty normal party. It wasn't at a mountain, it was in the the woods. Um, But it involved uh, students driving a Hummer into a lake, throwing knives into the the wood in the cabin, and then taking all of the uh, furniture from the cabin and building a bonfire out of it. Um, People were getting naked, taking all sorts of drugs, and then a, a forest ranger came. And basically what the students told me was, the force manager couldn't do anything. They, they they were sort of beyond the pale of their authority. And when um, both the college and the state sort of try to step in, the fraternity just had sort of the alumni base and the sort of money to, to pay and make it go away. And to me, you know, a lot of this book is sort of about the consequence of a life without consequences and Mountain Weekends, you know, sort of starts the book, you know, These guys feel like they can get away with anything because they often can. Um, Between the alumni, between the parents, between lawyers, between sort of just the general scaffolding around them, um, you really can get away with a lot.
0: The central character in the book is Mikey Schmidt. Let's talk a little bit about the arc of his career and his career, uh, the arc of his college and his college adjacent career.
2: Sure, so yeah, when Mikey showed up to College of Charleston in 2013, he had just finished a seven-inch growth spurt, basically up until senior year of, of high school. He was five foot zero, his voice hadn't changed. And in Mikey's case, I think that he he developed this sort of preternatural swagger because when you're five foot zero and your voice is as high as the girls you know you wanna to talk to, you sort of develop this, I think, confidence, or in his case, he did. And so he showed up to Charleston with all this confidence, he also showed up even better um, with a pretty booming fake ID business, and between those two things, he pretty quickly joined the Kappa Alpha Order at the College of Charleston, which is this famous sort of predominantly Southern fraternity. Their spiritual founder is Robert E. Lee. Um, within a year, he dropped out of school um, and was working valet at, in sort of the Atlanta nightlife and meeting a lot of uh, people in the Atlanta rap scene. And then within you know the next year, he was. He was bringing cartel-grade cocaine from Mexico via Atlanta to fraternity houses around the southeast. And then part of this Xanax ring that was bringing in um, pressed al powder from China via the dark web, pressing out with their own pill presses and shipping millions of pills to fraternities around, this then really around the US.
0: And it's interesting because as this evolves, he, he's, I think he's, you mentioned he's only in school for about a year, but he still stays pretty involved with the Kappa Alpha College of Charleston chapter,
2: doesn't he? Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's something I think a lot of people don't realize about fraternities is, you know, there is sort of this informal tradition. It's certainly not allowed, but you certainly see it of, you know, guys in community college, or even guys who drop out, who are still coming to, peace, still coming to meetings, may, might even still uh, haze pledges, as was the case here, um, and really functionally are, are still very much members of the fraternity. It's much more um, amorphous and sort of porous than I think people think.
1: And, and talk to us about, paint a picture in our minds, if you will, outside of Greek life. What was the culture like at College of Charleston? Is it largely a, a school uh, for kids of wealthy parents that, you know, maybe were there more for a good time than as opposed to an education? What, what What's the culture like on campus, both in Greek life but outside of Greek life?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is you know, Travel and Leisure named it the most beautiful campus in America. And they also named Charleston the most beautiful city in America. So it's this sort of jewel box within a jewel box. And that does attract a lot of different types of students. Um, You have the sort of in-state kids who are from much more kind of middle income or low income backgrounds, um, kind of, you know, from smaller towns around South Carolina. But then yes, you have these families from Greenwich, Connecticut, Westchester, um these sort of wealthy old southern families and it's this kind of crazy combination of northeastern wealth southern wealth um kind of all coming together in this town that's famous for king street for bachelor and bachelorette parties um just generally for um yeah being a place that people come to to maybe go out five or six nights a week
0: and you know you talked about i want to talk a little bit about sort of, just the sheer magnitude of the drugs that were being sort of, you know, funneled through this ring that starts with Mikey Schmidt and hold that up against sort of the size of the population of these schools. I mean, I think these numbers are pretty astounding.
2: Yeah, they are. I mean, I was, so, you know, the, in the original police report, they said they had confiscated 44,000 pills, which sounded like a lot to me. Um, but then when I started reporting, a defense lawyer sort of let it slip that they had actually found closer to 3 million pills and never, never publicized it. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, you really are talking about trafficking at a a really, basically, industrial scale. But I think the sort of catch legally is, at least in South Carolina, there's no Xanax trafficking charge on the books. There's only uh, possession with intent to distribute. So basically, the difference between 3,000 pills and 3 million is nothing in the eyes of the law which, you know, in a strange way almost incentivizes, I guess, the economies of scale.
0: And again, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think about that, that that size of a Xanax pill over the relevant population. I mean, you get the sense that if all these pills are being sort of consumed within the college community, y- y- the, the usage per student is extraordinarily high.
2: Yes, I mean, so, but it's not just, you know, it all started at the College of Charleston, but these guys were, they were using pledges and they themselves were, were dealing at school, you know, these large fraternity houses all over the South. Um, and so it is still the usage per student is extraordinarily high, but it is this ultimately wasn't a national organization.
0: Yeah, it's, as you read the book, there are images. Uh, we were talking about pledges being sort of directed to carry drugs from one uh, school to another, and you, I don't know. I have this image of Ray Liotta and the helicopters from uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, you, you yeah, know, and that's yeah. what it felt like. I mean, it, it's extraordinary this sort of this combination between Greek life and functioning illegality.
2: Yeah, it really is. And you know, some guys would tell me um, a fraternity is kind of a drug dealer's dream, right? Because you show up to these large southern mansions, and basically, you might have. 50 customers all in one house that you can just knock out pretty immediately. And the only police nearby are gonna be campus policemen on golf carts with flashlights. And a lot of these guys, you know, frankly, have a good amount of money and don't know how much things should cost. And also there's a lot of social pressure not to sort of rat on your friends. And so it really is this just incredibly efficient system.
1: And, you know, anytime you're involved in, in a trade like this, there's a lot of money involved. Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the money uh, in, in that you found out about and how were the kids spending it. And just tell us the money story.
2: Definitely. I mean, so on one level, you know, there's the sort of conspicuous consumption of, you know, BMWs and Porsches and bottle service and, you know, steak dinners and, you know, This sort of what you would expect for like a flashy 19 year old with, you know, a lot of liquidity. But the more interesting thing to me was that the first ever Bitcoin seizure in American history happened this ring. Uh, This guy named Eric Hughes, the DEA seized his Bitcoin um, in the early 2010s and and yeah, I think there was a lot of that going on kind of from the beginning. And of course, Bitcoin is worth a lot more now than it was in 2010. And so it turned out to be quite the quite the investment.
0: Yeah, some of the stories you have about the way Mikey Schmidt lived his life during this period are pretty extraordinary. Um, he, he really was living pretty high on the hog, wasn't he?
2: He really was. And, you know, I think especially when you get into sort of the Atlanta rap world as well and sort of the strip clubs and nightlife there and then combine it with the sort of Greek life in Charleston um it really is a pretty full-time carousel
1: and and how did this murder come to be i mean without the murder it's it's i'm guessing it's likely you would not have picked up this story how did the the murder end up happening
2: definitely so there was um a student who sort of joined this like trafficking network his name was patrick moffley um he's from a pretty prominent low country south carolina family his dad was a big real estate developer his mom had run for congress and was on the school board in charleston and when he showed up to the college of charleston his housemates were all dealing xanax and he pretty quickly got involved he was wearing you know tyvex suits and basically he would empty out skittles bags fill them with xanax and then heat seal them and then ship ship those around sort of the region and on the first friday of spring break 2016 he was found murdered a block from campus at his house um, and he was holding a Chipotle napkin to the, the wound in his chest and his, his body was surrounded by hundreds of these, these counterfeit Xanax pills. And that's when the, the police really got involved up into that point. Like I said, it was sort of the campus policeman with the, the flashlight. But after that, you get the DEA, the FBI, the Postal Service. I mean, something I learned in this book is that um, the U.S. Postal Service, at least according to one DEA agent, is the largest drug trafficker in the world because so many people ship drugs using federal mail um knowing that usps can't really hope to search you know just how much mail is going through its system every day um but all that's to say is all these kind of federal agents got involved the state and local police got very serious and all these fraternity kids started wearing wires on each other and and flipping basically
1: and and why why did the murder take place what was the motivation behind that
2: So, I mean, there are different theories. You know, he was, uh, he himself was about to, you know, face a a trial for cocaine trafficking. And so some people think that people were afraid he was going to cooperate with the police. But the simplest explanation is that it was just a drug robbery gone wrong. He had 10,000 Xanax pills, and some guys in West Ashley, which is a very different sort of side of the tracks from College of Charleston, came to rob him. Um, And he had a broken arm. They didn't think he would fight back, and then he did, and and they they shot him and and fled.
0: I I, I want to come back to the end of the story and talk about what happens in the punishments. But first, I want to touch on a thing that really struck me as I was reading the book, which is, while the book focuses on the men involved, women were a major part of the Greek scene. But the behavior you described seems pretty misogynistic. And I'm trying to understand why you know, edu- women who are getting an education at a place like the of Car- Charleston would choose to participate so actively in that
2: life. Sure. I mean, I think on, on one level, it's just the party scene is it's incredibly fun. I think that's something that people really, I think there's a false idea that when people join Greek life, they sort of get tricked into it and then next thing you know, they're getting hazed, or next thing you know, they're facing misogyny or whatever it is. I think most students know what they're getting into when they join Greek life, and they choose to do it anyway, in part because, you know, it's sort of the antidote to loneliness and the sort of party scene is just gonna be, like, the uh, campus. Some of it is um, the sort of social status that's involved. Um, and you're, you really are sort of joining the elite. I mean, the statistics of, You know over 75 percent of all money given to colleges comes from greek alumni so that's sort of giving you an idea of just how much wealth is in this system and so yeah i think students know exactly what they're getting when they join
1: now it 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 sounds like uh from what you said about your college days um you're quite a bit younger than roger and i who uh uh, (laughs) graduated uh in in a in a different uh millennium uh than than you did I'm curious, knowing what you, from your experience in Greek life, knowing what you know, um, if you have kids, when the time comes for them to go to college, is frat life something, is Greek life something you would encourage them to do? And what warnings would you give them as you're dropping them off?
2: Sure. So, you know, I, who knows, I'm only 30, so who knows how much (laughs) it would change between now and then. But I think if I were to, you know, have kids right now and send them, I, I would certainly say, you know, you're over 18, this is completely your choice. I might not want to pay for it. Um, but yeah, there was certainly a few things. One would be for as much as you hear about hazing, ultimately one student a year in America dies of a hazing death, but many, many, many more students die in Greek life every year from drug overdoses and accidents having to do with alcohol, whether that's falling off a roof or getting in a car getting in an accident. And so that's really what I want to look out for, is if you're taking a pill, what's in the pill? If you're drinking, you know, how many drinks have you had tonight? Are you hydrating? You know, is your friend passed out? Like, call the EMT. That's really kind of what you need to be focusing on more than the, you know, the hazing stuff is scary, scandalous, and it, it causes big sort of news stories. But in terms of saving life, it's really the substance abuse you look out for.
0: Before we go, one of the things that, that, that is important in the book is what happens to all these people in the end. We have lots of students who are heavily involved in drug trafficking, but it looks like Robbie Mikey Schmidt's about the only one who ends up going to jail. Why did it work out like that?
2: Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, the. So of the two fraternities, like I said, Kapow, Order and SAE, um, K was kicked off campus for four years, but out back on campus. SAE never left campus at all. And of all the boys that were involved in this drug ring, like you said, the only one who's in prison right now is Mikey Schmidt. And I think that just kind of shows the power of this system, the power of these lawyers, the power of these alumni, and just how much these guys can get away with. And so you know, going back to Mountain Weekend to this, it's sort of the same lesson all over again which is if you're one of the boys, you can get away with a lot.
0: Yeah, one of the things that really struck me was y- you talk a-, a lot about a guy named Rob, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce that, Liljaberg. Tell us a little bit yes, about exactly. him. And and, why, and, and you know, the fact that he and so many of these other kids actually not only don't go to jail, but they end up getting degrees from the College of Charleston. Tell us a little bit about Rob.
2: Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, Rob um, was Mikey's best friend in the fraternity in K.A. And he kind of came from a more classic big man on campus sort of background. He was an Eagle Scout, he was soccer team captain, he was an altar boy, um, and seemed in some ways like a less likely candidate to be a crazy fraternity guy. And I think he learned pretty quickly that in this system there's not as much social clout and being an altar boy or an Eagle Scout as there is maybe being someone who's dealing weed at scale or other things. And ultimately he was, the, the, the boy who wore a wire on Mikey Schmidt to get him to admit to selling you know a pound and a half of cocaine and Rob was that cocaine dealer that sold that cocaine. and so um, it really shows you how much things can change in a few years. But yes, he ultimately partially I think because he was willing to cooperate with the police and partially you know made, he's a very charming guy, he had a very good lawyer but yeah, he is he was allowed to graduate and and did a, a bit of jail time but is now, you know, out and about.
1: Okay, well, it's a it's a sad story, but it's fascinatingly told. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. We've been speaking with Max Marshall. He's the author of Among the Bros. Max, thanks for joining us. I don't know how many Utahns have thought to themselves we need to have rail service from Salt Lake City to Las Vegas or Boise Salt Lake to Las Vegas, but in March of 2023, Corridor proposal submissions were made to the Federal Railroad Administration. And the first step to restoring passenger rail, I guess back in the day there was that rail, uh, between Boise Salt Lake and Las Vegas. Unfortunately, this route was not included in last Friday's announcement made by the FRA. Mike Christensen is the executive director of the Utah Rail Passengers Association. Since its its creation in two thousand eighteen, and he's here to join us this morning and discuss the proposed passenger rail line. Um, thank you for joining us this morning, Mike. Mike, you're welcome. Uh, good morning. So, 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 so. high level. Um, I want to start at the be, kind of at the beginning here. Um, your association did not exist prior to two thousand eighteen. Why? Why was this organization created?
3: uh it was created uh it it basically grew out of the work that i did as a grad student at the university of utah Um, i looked at what we needed to do in order to expand uh, passenger rail across utah and into neighboring states and i saw that there wasn't a lot of interest or even capacity within utah to to be able to pursue that so i Created the nonprofit as a way to build that capacity, and uh, unfortunately, have not always gotten the funding that I've needed to to pursue that vision. But
1: uh, uh, yeah, that that gets us to where we are today. Well, I have to, I ask, have to ask, there's, ask there's these not these many days. grad students that are that passionate about projects that they work on. Was this something you entered school with a vision to do or was this developed during your time at the U?
3: It was a little bit of both. I did have the idea before I started grad school, but grad school really gave me the tools to be able to um, analyze, uh, Analyze it better and be able to to realize that this is something that utah really needs and that uh, Utah has the the population for
0: Let's in order to set up what happened with the FRA Let's talk a little bit about the creation and evolution of Amtrak and The corridor identification and development program that was part of the infrastructure act in other words set the framework for what happened last week
3: Uh, Yeah, the the best way to understand uh, how we got Amtrak was uh, the fact that um, after World War II, the, our transportation priorities changed pretty drastically. And we put lots of funding into basically making it as cheap to drive and fly as possible. And there, the investment in, in passenger rail just dried up. Unfortunately, the, the railroads were still required to operate uh, passenger service, but they weren't able to make a profit because they weren't able to compete with the subsidies that driving and flying were receiving. And uh, that caused railroads to start to go bankrupt. And the solution uh, that the railroads asked for was basically to create Amtrak and have Amtrak take over Uh, passenger rail service from the railroads and uh, Amtrak has had a lot of struggles over its 50-year existence trying to uh, to continue to operate service and it's because of the the competition from driving and flying it's needed uh, some pretty significant subsidies in order to uh, to keep going. When the Biden administration was planning the uh, IIJA, the the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, uh, they knew they wanted to have uh, a substantial portion of that for passenger rail, and so there were multiple programs to help help states fund that, and one of them is called the Corridor identification and development program, which uh, has multiple steps to help fund the planning process for new rail services. And uh, one of the the, the first step in the corridor ID program is getting, uh, having states apply for uh, a pool of money that would provide a half million dollars for planning per application and that is the money that unfortunately we didn't get and uh, that was announced
1: this past week by the federal railroad administration and and so when you know when i go to other countries first off the us is a very car centric country right we're wide open spaces in utah in particular in my opinion is very car centric when i go to other countries that do have uh, thriving rail system the the most popular connections at least from my experience are the ones that maybe give you an hour to an hour and a half uh, type situation and there you're going from city center to city center so you can really compete effectively with companies like Ryanair that offered nine dollar fares from uh, Rome to Venice or, or whatever um, but what would the time have been to get on a a train in Salt Lake City to get to Las Vegas was the idea that this would be high speed and if so we'd need new tracks Um, so what what would be the time commitment and what would be the dollar commitments to make that happen
3: yeah high-speed rail is something that would be wonderful but it is something that's massively expensive Um, there was a study that the, that the engineering department at the University of Utah did in 2015 that estimated the cost of high-speed rail from uh, Salt Lake City to Vegas. The construction costs alone would be uh, in 2015 dollars, about 15 billion. And uh, it, it would get you there very quickly. Uh, unfortunately, that plan one of the things missing from it was any intermediate stops uh it was designed with the idea to directly complete excuse me compete with flying uh unfortunately it really misses out on the point of having a train which is to like usually there's lots of focus on on the endpoints because we think of things a lot in the term of of, of flying where we're, we're only going between, uh, between point A and point B. I feel like the, the power of passenger rail is the fact that it makes intermediate stops and collect connects a lot more than just the endpoints. Um, so with this, the, the proposal that was, uh, denied by the federal government that, uh, would have used conventional uh, existing tracks and it would have taken at least seven hours to get between Salt Lake City and Vegas, but it also would have connected uh, communities along the way and our rural communities uh, in the West here are really in need of having better transportation options. So that is really where the, the the power and utility of, of passenger rail comes from.
0: I don't mean to literally sidetrack us, but I do want to ask: uh, when you talk about that fifteen billion dollar number, is that because high speed rail would require different physical tracks? Because obviously the right of ways are already there.
3: Yes, the the existing uh, rights of way, the existing tracks, uh, don't haven't been built to to support. Uh, you know, the the 200 plus mile per hour trains. And so in order to have that uh, infrastructure for high-speed rail, that would need to be built from scratch. And uh, that's what makes it massively expensive. Uh, Whereas if we use existing infrastructure and partner with Union Pacific uh, to use their tracks, we can uh, cut the cost tremendously uh, because essentially the infrastructure is already built
1: and just needs, uh, needs some relatively minor improvements. So Mike, it, Mike it, it sounds like your enthusiasm for this plan was not necessarily to get people to take the seven hour train ride from Salt Lake city to Las Vegas, but really to connect communities and to, to offer a better way to connect some of these rural locations. I'm curious, you know, when as I was hearing you talk, in the Northeast they've got a very efficient rail system and then surprisingly California's actually got this community connection vision in place with I believe is called their coastal rail system, I'm, I'm assuming that you're familiar with it. Why was it economical for California to have that but it wasn't economical for the state of Utah to have that? Why does California well, get all the cool toys and Utah doesn't have them? Doesn't have. Them.
3: The the problem is kind of in in what uh the priorities are for each state and what they view as economical. Um, the the these train routes in California, there there are ones that are that are existing, two of which are two of the uh highest ridership uh routes in all of Amtrak's system uh there there is the capital corridor which goes between sacramento and the bay area and the uh pacific Surfliner, which goes mostly between la and san diego but also has uh some runs that go up to san luis obispo
1: and it goes all the way up to to san francisco if i'm not mistaken Oh, if i'm not
3: mistaken there there also is the additional route that uh the coast starlight that goes all the way from la to seattle that uh runs once a day uh, but that's that's a long distance route which is not funded by the states but is funded by the federal government whereas the uh the other the two other routes that i just mentioned are actually funded by the state of california and so like whether and the question as to whether or not it's economical is more whether or not the uh, the states really prioritize that service and in california they've realized that they need to to contribute to uh, helping that service along Um, in in most of these situations the ticket fares only pay for about half of the operations and maintenance costs of a route and uh, in these cases the state
0: of california contributes the the additional uh, funding that's needed And, and that takes us to a point that i think is really important when we talk about looking at a world of rail versus air versus versus driving the we hear a lot about the subsidies that Amtrak requires in order to maintain even the Northeast corridor routes. Talk to us a little bit about how would we compare apples and oranges of the kinds of subsidies that air traffic already receives that we don't hear so much about. So much
3: about. Yeah, uh, for example, when when you pay for an airline ticket, very little of that actually goes to maintaining the infrastructure. It, uh, it pays, the airline's cost to provide you that service. It is not paying for the airports and the runways, uh, and it is not paying for the, the Federal Aviation Administration's air traffic control system. Um, there, There is a fee that, that goes to help offset the cost of uh, the TSA, uh, checks that you do but that still doesn't pay uh, all of all of the TSA's funding so there are massive amounts of money that the federal government contributes and also state and local governments in order to make uh, all of those those airline fares actually uh, work from the standpoint that you of what you pay as a consumer uh it's also very important to look at the fact that driving is very much the same way uh, the AAA every year updates their estimates on what it costs on average uh, per year per household to own a car and their estimate is now about twelve thousand dollars a year and what gets ignored is that uh, on average uh Federal government and state and local governments are contributing an additional fourteen thousand a year to uh, enable us to be able to drive. So I often get that criticism that it takes fund or it you know it takes subsidies to to provide uh, Amtrak service and also to provide public transit. But uh, often, yeah, everybody completely overlooks the the subsidies needed to allow us to
1: drive and fly. Mike, we've only got time for one last question, but I have to ask, this is clearly a passion of yours. You went in with this vision into your graduate program at the U, you came out, you started this organization, you pitched the government on creating this corridor. I'm curious, in in your ideal world, what does transportation look, you know, 30 years from now, what does transportation look like uh, in the state of Utah, and unfortunately, we've only got two minutes for that answer.
3: Well, I would like to see a future where we driving is much less of a necessity than it is today. And a good way to describe it is that I don't want to take away people's cars, but I want to provide the in- infrastructure that they don't really need uh, their cars anymore. So uh, that that requires a whole menu of of different uh, transportation options, and passenger rail is just one of those. Uh, we also have uh, a necessity to to basically stop designing our cities around cars and design around the needs of people, and that's really where the priority lies.
0: Okay, and even though I'm going to take us slightly over time. We lost the ability on this round to get funding for a study. Is it over or will you try again next year? Sure. Uh, We can try again
3: in 2024. Um, I feel we really need to change how how Utah is approaching this and do it from very much a a grassroots bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach.
1: Okay, that's a great note for us to leave it on. We've been speaking with Mike Christensen, the executive director of the Utah Rail Passengers Association. Mike, thanks for all your hard work on this and good luck next year. You're welcome, thank you. And Mound Money will be back in a minute. Welcome back to Mound Money. The year was 2010 and Pret Helmets was born when a group of professional athletes, engineers, and veterans of the snow sport industry came together to create what they hoped would be the ultimate helmet. Their vision was a helmet so pure that it wouldn't affect your skiing or riding performance. Today, we can actually get our hands on these Pret helmets in retailers, not just here in Park City, but across the globe. And you'll also see them in action on the heads of athletes uh, competing at the Olympics and World Cup competitions all over the free ride scene, and of course, right here in Park City. Joining us this morning to talk more about Pret Helmets, is its CEO, Steve Belfay. Steve, welcome to Mount Money. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, so um, I guess the first question is: Pret helmets. Uh, how did it come, how did you come up with the name Pret? It's an unusual name. It's a great branded name, right? It's short, it's easy to pronounce. How did that come to be? Well, that, that's an important factor is having a,
4: you know, a name that fits on a helmet that works. Um, Pret is French, and it means ready. So the thought behind it was you're at the top of the hill, your skis are tuned, your boots are tightened, you're ready to go. Once your helmet's on, buckled, that's when you're ready.
0: And let's talk about helmet design. Obviously, you thought there was a space for a different approach to helmet design. What are the key characteristics? What are the things that you want to meet in designing a helmet? So, so, Pret, we, our, our
4: goal is to cover a number of different aspects. Obviously, I came from the bike industry, and you're in your bike helmet two to four hours. You're going to be in your ski helmet sometimes six or more hours. So it needs to be comfortable. It needs to be light. Um, the variable conditions, you want to have adjustment in ventilation. And unlike cycling or not quite as much as cycling, fashion's a little bit of a part of it as well. Um, so the looks with people who spend a lot of money on outfits, um, you want it to, to look good. The other thing that we also focus on is having something that's low profile. I think the, the Pret skier is out there for a good chunk of the day in all kinds of conditions. They're going to have a, a parker with a hood. They want to be able to get that on and off easily and having something low profile makes that really easy to do
1: as opposed to having a big bulky thing on top of your head. So. Several decades ago, when I was in business school, we, we did a case study on what is probably one of your lower cost competitors, Giro. And this is back in the day when they first started taking off and it's a huge market. And for Giro, they've got the volume, right? Because they're more of the pedestrian everyday users. They've got the volume to give them the money to give them the funds for the law, the inevitable lawsuits that are coming. And, and, you know, Park City's interesting because if I'm not mistaken, not only do we have your company based here, but we've also got pock Helmets based here. And as I look at that from a business standpoint and from an economic standpoint, I think what a lousy business because <laughs> it's low. I'm thinking it's low volume, but high, high liability Am I right is, is this an incredibly tough space and it's a labor of love or is it a better industry than I'm thinking?
4: You no, know, it is a tough space, but it is a labor of love as well. Um, you know, we're based here. We're headquartered here. You, you also have Shred that's based here. POC has an office here. They're a Swedish company. Um, the liability factor, it's part of every uh, product that's out there. Um, I think, like I said, I mentioned I come from the bike world where liability is kind of very high. Uh, you see more suits with on the bicycle side of things. Um, on ski, we're very fortunate. Um, we've had a couple last year. We had a couple, I was at a show and got an email with an incredible picture of a helmet that just was destroyed, and the person was so grateful for the helmet um, and what it did to, to essentially save their life. So those are some of the, the positive things. I think from a, but from a legal standpoint, we've been very fortunate. I don't think we see the amount of lawsuits on the ski side that some other helmet, um, you know, brands and or industries. Like I said, I think bike is obviously a lot bigger of a market. It's year round. It's everything from Walmart to super
1: high end. And so there's a lot more people out there and and more opportunity for lawsuits. Before I pass the baton to Roger for the next question, I just want to build on the point you made about the, the thank you photos that you get. I think... Park City is a town that's filled with people that have several of those photos. I have three or four Mm -hmm. of my own. And every time I look at my helmet, I think, oh, my goodness, what would have happened if I wasn't wearing a helmet? And when I was a kid, it was not normal to wear a helmet skiing or even bike riding. And I literally have three or four helmets that if that had happened to my skull, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. So thank you for this passion and love. It's important. (laughs)
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, helmets are, they're made, they're really made for a catastrophic event to prevent a real serious injury. So, um, and that's where part of the challenge comes in 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 developing helmets. You have such a small amount of space to absorb a big impact.
0: And let's talk about that. You know, obviously there are certain sort of characteristics of physics that we can't overcome. Mass and acceleration and impact all are, are gonna be, you know, fixed if you will. What does a helmet do? How do you cushion that impact? Well, we
4: use, our impact is is EPS foam, which starts out as little beads, I'll call them if you're from the East Coast, Jimmy's on your ice cream, they're, mm-hmm. they're little, and that gets expanded and then it gets in a, heated with moisture and then it gets injected and heated again, and it goes into a mold and, and those little beads puff up like a piece of rice and then they also bond together. And then the impact, the absorption, comes from those beads breaking or splitting apart. And that's what dissipates uh, the impact from a, from a crash.
0: And, and, again, just to follow up on that, does that suggest that if you have a, a serious crash, that the
4: helmet probably should be replaced? Exactly. Okay. It's, it's, it's more equivalent to an airbag. Once it goes off, you're, you're replacing that airbag. Um, and it's really hard to tell... So you, you want to err on the other side because once the, the infrastructure of that foam is, is broken, it does lose its ability to take another big impact.
1: And, and there's a difference between a regular helmet and a high-end helmet. There's a certification um, that I know we're supposed to look for and every year when I, or every three years when I buy a new helmet, I do a quick Google search. What is that certification? And share with our audience how important that certification is?
4: Well, in in the US, we use ASTM, which is over a number of industries. It's actually a voluntary, but most major companies are going to meet those standards. Europe has a slightly different test, similar impact absorption, it's called the CE um, test. And they go through a number of impacts on different types of surfaces. Um, And then we also, we'll use a third-party testing lab to verify. The factory that we use does testing on their own, but we third-party certify it as well, Uh, a U.S. company that does testing in a number of different industries.
0: We've got a couple minutes left, but as a business show, we're always interested in things like how difficult is it for you to set up a manufacturing chain? Where is your manufacturing done? And then the uh, accompanying piece of that is is tell us about your marketing strategies. Um, Well, from the
4: production side of things, we're fortunate enough that um, the factory that we use, they only do um, proprietary products. So there are, there are a number of big factories in Asia where you could go and just buy a helmet, pick your graphics. Um, but you're, you know, we really want to have a unique product. And so everything's designed here. Um, the CAD files are sent, and then you work with the factory just kind of smooth and make the production of it a little bit easier. Fortunately, they have an office in Park City, so it's easy for us to work with that factory. Um, and, they, and they do some work for a couple of the brands you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um,
1: and that's actually what I, I was going to go next. We've only got a minute left, yeah. but talk to us as CEO of the company. How do you, from a manufacturing standpoint, how, how do you look at that and say, okay, this is being manufactured where my competitors are also being manufactured. And I guess it's not that unusual. I mean, most of our chips, most of our computer chips are all made in the same factory. Giant giant spike factory
4: makes Trek spikes. So they're they're building to your specifications. So, um, and, uh, you know, once in a while the factory might have a technology on how they do a mold that will help any of the brands that, that are coming out of that factory. Um, Roger, to touch on the marketing side, Pret started as really a brand for the people who love being out there. I don't like necessarily the word enthusiast, but the people are going to be out there when it's sunny, when it's snowing out, when it's a blizzard. And uh, and so the goal when it started was really to go after kind of the key markets and the key good skiers out there. Um, so Park City, um, Squaw Valley, Vail, Colorado Resorts, and get... The helmets on the on the heads of really good skiers and a lot of ski patrol and ski instructors we, we focus a lot on ventilation and if you think about it when you're the hottest it's not when you're going 30 miles an hour it's mm-hmm. when you're stopped so if you're a ski patroller... Or, or when you're picking up a
1: six-year-old that's right. following, Well, is or, or the job a, of a ski instructor. Or a,
4: a ski patroller who's dressed for five degrees and, and not moving on a lift that's going 20, and then they're stopped putting a 250-pound person into a sled. Well, well we, well, could, ta- we yeah. could
1: talk skiing and ski helmets <laughs> yeah. all day. Unfortunately, we need to wrap it there. We've been uh, speaking with Steve Belay uh, with Pret Helmets. You can find those Pret Helmets here in Park City. And across the globe, Steve, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.